So we're in chapter 12 of the book of Luke. Lord willing, we'll get you through the second half of it. I, I don't know who, I guess it was Barb I was talking to the other night. I, I really struggle with the book of Luke. He puts too much in there. You know, he has way too much information for me to process. I, I really, if at all possible, I like to go through one, one uh, chapter a week. Uh, I, I know I've been bogged down in Romans and sometimes I do one verse a week and that, that really gets tiresome when you're in year seven of the book of Romans. But uh, but I'm, I'm trying to move as fast as I can and I apologize. If, if you're really getting sick of this, please tell me. Say, I'm getting tired. This is tedious. I'm, I'm getting tired of going through Luke. There's just so much there. And, and it's hard to keep it in context. Uh, we... Uh, th- there is in verse one the statement that says, "In the meantime," and and I'm told I'm told that that suggests that this event is right on the heels of that disastrous breakfast that I was talking about last week and the week before, and possibly even the week before that, uh, where the Pharisee invited Jesus to breakfast, and it, it turned into what uh, many of these statements we find in the Sermon on the Mount and in, in other passages in Matthew. Uh, and people say, well, maybe Luke got it wrong. I, I think the Holy Spirit arranged it in this order for a reason, and that's why I think it's worth our time to go through it. I also don't think, uh, you know, because uh, Luke, Luke misquotes Matthew. It's an absurd statement I just said. Uh, Luke misquotes Matthew uh, because Luke was writing what Luke learned, and Matthew wrote what he saw. But uh, it's not a misquote. I think the Holy Spirit put it in that order that he wants it. So when we're seeing five sparrows sold for two farthings, Matthew only has two sparrows sold for a penny. Uh, Jesus probably said these statements a hundred times while he was teaching. He probably, everywhere he went, he probably reiterated a lot of these statements. And he probably said it a lot of different ways, you know. How many different ways can you teach how to use a table saw? It's an interesting challenge if you teach woodshop and uh, and you have 120 students every year for 20 years. You know how many different ways can I go over this stupid saw? You know you you do it over and over and over again. And sure, Jesus did that thing too. Now it's really not until verse 54, if your Bibles are open, that you'll see Jesus turns to the crowd. So in in last week, or perhaps a week before, I, I really don't remember, he turned to his disciples. I think it was last week when he was telling them, "Beware the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees." <coughs> he does this while at breakfast with a Pharisee, which I find very courageous or offensive, uh, and. Uh, he uh, he said, "Beware of the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees." So, as far as I know, as we as we go from chapter eleven and into chapter twelve, and we talk about hypocrisy last week, well, as far as I know, he's still addressing his disciples. Now, the disciples weren't just his apostles, the ones who followed him. It's anyone who wanted to be a learner. So that really includes you. So, in a way, these messages, when it says, "And he said to his disciples, as learners." That's referring to you uh, through through the writing of the Holy Spirit. You know. Now we're told there's an innumerable multitude listening, so a lot of people have crowded around this event. And in the process of chapter 12, at least at this point, I'm counting three warnings to those who would follow him. And the first, of course, was last week, which is hypocrisy. This week, beware of covetousness. And next week, beware of being unprepared for my return. So that's sort of the outline that we've been following last week, this week, and next week. 
Now, the point is, uh, and I probably should turn this guy on. Is he on? So then what I need to do is do this. Get it up there for you. Uh, well, there you go. I was going to say, what's happening there? So a lot of what we're going to talk about today is the ownership of stuff and anxiety over stuff and our safety and what to say to people when we're trying to witness. That's pretty much what uh, this, this section is about, you know. Uh, when, I, when I pretend to be something I'm not, I'm a hypocrite. Uh, But there's no need to pretend that I'm something I'm not. Because the point here is, you're enough. I'm enough. You are exactly the way God wants you to be. You're just as tall, just as short, just as wide, just as strong, just as smart, just as articulate as God wants you to be. And he creates you that way in a mosaic of Christian testimony that your message will reach people that my message won't meet. Uh, and it's important that you not be ashamed of yourself and feel forced to become or act like or pretend to be something you're not. And that's really how I'm reading this. Uh, are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? And one of them, and not one of them is forgotten before God. But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore... You have more value than many sparrows. You know, I'm losing hair in the front, but God intends it that way. That's the point, you know. Now, this you get all hung up in this drachma thing, and I certainly did this week, uh, trying to figure out what, what in the world is a farthing. That's a British measure of a part of a penny. Uh, why the King James translators went into that, I don't know. But it's... A drachma in the Greek is a day's wage for the average worker. Uh, it's one sixteenth of a day's wage. You know, if I started out at, you know, five dollars an hour or ten dollars an hour, it's one sixteenth of that. And I think, what's that? You know, I'm not going to pay two bucks for a sparrow. But then we don't eat sparrows. They do. There are other cultures where sparrows are eaten. You know. Now, clearly, the emphasis here isn't about the translation of the Greek coin that Jesus is talking about. The emphasis here is a sparrow is a very small value to, to us, very small value. And yet God cares for them. And we are far more valuable than a sparrow to God. Now, Matthew will add to that. He'll, when he says it, are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? Same price point. One of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. So if you buy four sparrows, you get one free. It's a heck of a deal in the market, at least in Jesus' day, right? Uh, you get buy four, get one free. But the point was the same. See, not one of them shall fall on the ground without your father. Your life is important to God. It's so important to God that he actually numbers the hairs on your head, which... It's almost hyperbole to me. I don't think it's necessary, although God does seem to know everything. How he does know everything, how he even keeps up with hair loss is beyond, beyond my ability to even comprehend. 
someone said God is a mathematician. There's no doubt about that. I, it's beyond my ability to comprehend, but the point is very clear, and that is nothing is going to happen to you that God doesn't allow. And I, I believe, to get sidetracked a little bit, I believe that's what uh, Jesus was talking about with the single eye. Uh, Norman Grubb explains the single eye. If your eye be single, your whole body is full of light, he said. The single eye is in everything that's happening in your life. Look to see God in it. Don't be looking for devils behind the bushes or problems or things that are outside of your control. Recognize that everything that happens in our lives comes from God. Accept everything in your life as if it's coming from God, good and bad. And it changes your view of life. That's the point. If thine eye be single, the whole body will be full of light. The point is, just as we are, just the way you are, you are very, very valuable to God. There's no need to pretend to be anything more than just who you are. And by not pretending and being genuine, others will be drawn closer to you. This is the point. Your physical looks, your abilities, your intellect, it's all given to us by God. He made us the way we are, and He intends us to be a special part of His kingdom. He has a purpose. Oh, I see. Well, do we want Jesus to speak up for us in the judgment? He says, deny me and be denied. Now, in this context, if my context is correct, what he's saying is we can accept who we are or we can pretend we're somebody different. We can accept our salvation in Christ or we can pretend to be something else. Also I say unto you, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. But he that denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. The promise is this, if you're faithful to God and you trust him and you walk with him, the day will come when in all the glory of heaven, Jesus Christ will confess you as his brother or sister and testify that you are a believer. And at the great white throne judgment, when that day comes, we will not stand in front of him, we'll stand behind him. He will be in front of us. And that's the glory of it all. The promise is, if you confess me, I will confess you. Now, I don't know how this plays into hypocrisy, and I don't know if the Holy Spirit intends it to. But I do, when I read this, think of how many times I've kept silent in a crowd because I was embarrassed. So these guys are sitting around eating lunch at a job site, and they're making all these stupid and lewd and obscene statements. And I don't say anything. In a way, it's kind of a reverse hypocrisy that I don't tell them who I am and that what they're doing is offensive. I don't speak up. For Jesus. I didn't really deny him in that situation. I just kept my mouth shut. And in a way, I was being a hypocrite because that's not who I am. I let them go. How often we keep silent in a crowd because we're fearful of what they might think. And as I was talking about last week, hypocrisy really is based on fear and a sense that I'm not what I should be. And of course, the point of what I'm speaking is you're everything God wants you to be, and there's no reason that you should feel fear about speaking up. 
We don't want them to know that we're followers of Christ because in their eyes, it's bad to be a follower of Christ. Our silence is our hypocrisy, is it not? Again, don't be afraid of what people think of you. Worry about what God thinks of you. The day will come when we'll be very glad to have Jesus speak up for us. And right now he's very glad when you find opportunity to speak up for him. And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven. Now we saw this in the last chapter, that the Pharisees found a way to explain away Jesus' miraculous powers. They, they, they knew that they couldn't say he wasn't doing significant miracles. They, they couldn't say that these blind are not seeing or it's only temporary. They couldn't say that these dead are not alive again. You know, they, they, they couldn't say that this man that was demon-possessed, which was the most recent miracle in Luke, and could no longer speak nor see, he was blind and dumb. The old English word would be dumb and inability to speak. Now when we use dumb, we mean hey, not too smart, but in the old days, dumb meant you can't speak. And we saw that in the last chapters, that the Pharisees' way to explain that is they said that he received his power through Satan, that he was in league with Satan and working with Satan and using the power of Satan to gain, garner, to get an advantage over us. But we know that Jesus did his power, did his miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit. So to believe that he is in league with Satan is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. They're saying that the power that he's operating in is not the Holy Spirit, it's Satan. So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a pretty specific crime. And I was listening to Missler this week, driving somewhere, and he said it's peculiar to Israel. I've never heard anyone say that before. Never, I've heard him on that sermon three or four times, but never picked up on it. Peculiar to Israel. Israel decided, Israel's leadership decided, that there was no value in Christ. And that he was not of God. Um, I wish you could remember his name that does the blogs. He's Jewish. Um, but he was saying, they were saying, why, why aren't you a Christian? He said, all my, all my Christian friends say they're praying for me. And he said, I'm glad. I'm glad you're praying for me. And they say, why don't you believe? And he said, well, I just don't believe that God had a son. I just don't believe it. I don't believe it's possible that God had a son. Then how did he do what he was doing? How was he raised from the dead? Probably say, I don't believe he was raised from the dead, but how did he do what he did? We have that recorded in secular as well as sacred writing. Well, if he wasn't God's son, he was operating in another spirit. So that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, see. I, I, it's not just saying, you know, Holy Spirit, you're terrible. It's saying that everything that God did for our salvation is a lie. And then it came out of the pit of hell. And I'm telling you, if you believe that, you can't be saved. That's what Jesus said. You can't be saved. This is a crime of Israel's religious leaders and eventually the nation of Israel. And perhaps we're headed that way in the United States. I don't know. I don't know where the line is drawn. Someone once said, and it may have been in Missler's sermon, he said, if you're worried about it, you haven't committed it. I don't know if that's true or not. 
But it seems to me that outside of uh, true national repentance, there's no hope. True personal repentance, there's no hope. Whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever in him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven. And then, now he's still teaching his disciples. He's talking to us, right? And he tells us the Holy Ghost will teach us what to say when they bring you into the synagogues and into the magistrates. Now, I may be saying this too early, but these people that have signed on to follow Christ then, and perhaps soon to be you too, have signed on to be enemies of the state. And more and more in our culture today, Christians are becoming enemies of the state. It's getting to where to speak God's word is hate speech. This is where they were at. Jesus knew that they were facing a hard time. The truth is, throughout the centuries, Christians have faced a hard time for following Christ. And amazingly enough, we've talked about it for 40 years. Amazingly enough, we're actually seeing it in our courts now. We're seeing the courts. We're seeing our legislators pass laws that make us criminals just for believing the Bible. Well, this is more pertinent to us now than the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is it not? When they bring you into the synagogues and the magistrates and powers, take ye no thought for how or what thing ye shall answer or what ye shall say, for the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what you ought to say. It's not up to you, it's not up to me to come up with a great eloquent defense or a testimony. Don't try to be more than you are. Don't be a hypocrite. Let the Holy Spirit through you, speak through you, and God will be satisfied with your testimony. Now, there are many times I want to share my witness, and it felt like I was on trial or something because I couldn't get the subject started. I have this person that's, that's either anti-God or I think there's some hope of their salvation, and I want to share Christ with them, and I can't think of anything to say. And I pray, Lord, give me some way to open this conversation. Lord, give me a word. Give me a way that I can turn this thing to a spiritual thing and, and, and begin to uh, open a conversation spiritually and nothing comes. And then I go away beating myself up. Why? It's not up to us. It's up to him. Trust him. When he wants you to say something, he'll tell you what to say. The words will be there. Now there's other times, I must confess, where the words were there and I was afraid to say anything anyway. And that's pretty typical for all of us, isn't it? We have an opportunity to speak, but we're afraid we'll look like fools in front of them. That's hypocrisy, see? But there are other times we don't know what to say, and the Holy Spirit doesn't give us anything to say. And we're just kind of stuck there, feeling bad. Jesus said, don't worry about it. Don't worry about what you should say. When the time is right, I'll tell you what to say. The important thing is whatever is said comes from the Holy Spirit. Because that's the one thing that will pierce their heart that the Holy Spirit brings. Not some 52 different ways to open them. The four spiritual laws. Now in the middle of this conversation, which is a little heady and a little complicated, and the disciples, you know, are scratching their heads a bit. 
there seems to be somebody in the crowd that gets tired of waiting. And he says, one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? It's odd for this fellow to cry out, Teacher, speak to my brother. Obviously, he feels like he's being cheated by his brother. I don't, I don't mean that's odd. And it's not odd that he asked Jesus because very often the, the Jews would go to the Pharisees for these types of situations. Would you speak to my brother? Would you speak to my mother? We're having this family problem. It's not, not unusual. But then Jesus wasn't a Pharisee. He wasn't a leader of the Jews. He was just there teaching his disciples. And it seems kind of odd to me that this guy would blurt out in the middle of all of this. And honestly... When I read this, verse 14, and maybe I'm reading too much of me into it, I'm thinking, you know, that, that kind of made Jesus angry. You know, man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? What have, what have I got to do with that? And yet it's a subject change, which I find interesting. This was neither the time nor the place for this, such a request from anyone, especially as he's teaching his disciples. He's got his back to the crowd. He's teaching those that follow him. But then you'll notice as you keep reading through this chapter that, that Jesus turns his message to this very subject of covetousness, using this interruption as a divine interruption. Jesus speaks on the subject of covetousness. Now, he's still speaking to his disciples because we'll get all the way up to verse 54 before he turns to the crowd. And he says, I'm assuming turning back to the disciples. Life is more than what we possess. And he said unto them, take heed and beware of covetousness for a man's life consisteth not, consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. I remember uh, Ron Clark used to be a member of this church. He was our treasurer for a number of years. Ron and Kay Clark lived in Australia for many years, and uh, some of the old-timers here actually remember them. And he's, he always was proud of the fact that he lived in Australia those many years, and he really identified with the Australians quite a bit. And he said, one of the interesting things about Australians, I've never tested this out. He said, if you meet an Australian, and you say to an Australian, what do you do? He'll answer with what his hobbies are. I don't know. I've never tested that out, but so says Ron Floyd. You know, so if I say to you, Ozzy, what do you do? I'll say, well, I go hang gliding. How does that pay? You know, you know, because they don't define themselves by their work. We in America define ourselves by our work and by our possessions. Somebody says to me, what do you do? I'll say I'm a pastor or I'll say I'm a teacher. I wouldn't dream of saying I'm a fisherman because then I would think you thought I went out fishing every day. It's what we do to make money. Too often our focus in this country is on our possessions. And that's the warning here. We should not focus so hard on our possessions. And Jesus gives a parable here of the rich man and he says he spake a parable unto them saying the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully and he thought within himself saying what shall I do to because I have no room where to bestow my fruits 
A lot of Americans fit this. Uh, that's the rise of all these little storage containers that are all around our country. Yeah, it's really a great way to make money. You just build storage containers and charge people to put their overflow of stuff in it. Yeah, I think. I mean, it used to be reasonable, thirty dollars a month, but now that it's a hundred dollars a month, I think, well, twelve hundred dollars a year just to put stuff in an eight by ten—you've got to be kidding, you know. And then you don't have any tenants to deal with. Steve over there at County Tire built that beautiful storage facility on Route Seven North on the west side. It's beautiful. He's got storage facilities I could put my boat in for $350 a month. Uh, but uh, I think to myself, heated, electricity, lights, wow, I could go in there and work on my boat all winter. That would be great. Yeah, I just couldn't afford it. It's worse than keeping it at the marina. That's what, what's wrong with us, that we have to have storage containers for all the stuff that overflows our houses. That's us. But it's more than that because he didn't have Social Security and he didn't have Medicare, so he's thinking in security. So he's putting all that stuff and he's going to build more barns. This I will do. I pull down my barns and build greater barns and there I'll bestow all my fruits and my goods. I won't have to worry after that. I won't have to worry about my future. And I will say unto my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. I have no problem with building a bigger barn. I wouldn't tear down my old barn, I'd just build another barn, but I have no problem with that. The problem comes when he says, I have much goods laid up for many years, take thine easy, drink and be merry. Because what he should have said is, Lord, you've blessed me, so what do you want me to do with this abundance? I mean, the Lord wants us to have a savings. The Lord wants us to have money set aside. Proverbs tells us we should have financial resources to pass on to the next generation. It says that that's that's how a culture advances. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. that. That's how come I'm standing here with you instead of back working in some grist mill because every ancestor of mine worked hard, set things aside, and made an advancement. For our whole culture, we are where we are today because of those that worked hard in the generations before us. I've nothing wrong with that. But the question is, there doesn't appear to have been any consultation with God about what he's going to do with his abundance that God has brought him. And our lives are more than our retirement accounts. That's the point. In fact, at the rate things are going with Uncle Joe, it's going to get worse. Our retirement accounts are going down precipitously. And he said, I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years laid. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. I don't think there's any opportunity in God's words for us to say, Sit on our backside, eat, drink, and be merry. It's, Lord, I have this blessing, what can I do? But God just said to him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. All this stuff we work for all these many years will belong to someone else while we're encouraged to build an inheritance for our children, that's not to be the focus of our lives. God intends 
that our lives be about more than just food and stuff. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, neither for the body what ye shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. In the Chosen series, there's a period, I think it's in season two, where they haven't eaten for a couple of days. They were traveling, and they haven't had time, and, and God hasn't provided opportunity, and they were down to eating just the, the, the meanest food that they could carry. And I like the way they pointed that out, because the truth is, these guys, like Paul, were used to going without for long periods of time. And Paul would say, I've, I've, I've experienced abundance and I've experienced want, and I've learned how to be thankful in both. And that's really how we're supposed to live. We're not to focus our lives on the next meal. Although I must confess, driving in, I was wondering what was for lunch today. Uh, that's probably the exact opposite of what we're supposed to be doing. You know, it's hard not to worry. And that's what he's transitioning to, taking a thought for your life. It's hard not to worry. It's hard not to worry about. We've gotten to a point in, in our retirement, at least. Uh, I remember as a brand new pastor, we did wonder where the next meal was coming from. We had a kind lady that came over one time and she had a, a tray filled with rabbit livers. And uh, she said, I don't know if you eat liver. I said, yeah, yeah, I do. And uh, so we started eating rabbit livers, so much so that we started raising our own rabbits. And she provided us with some breeding does. And the next thing you know, I've got 10 cages with 10 breeding does in it. And I'm in the rabbit business. Woo, woo. You know, because we were worried about food. Honestly, I think I spent way more on the rabbits than I ever got out of the rabbits. But nonetheless, uh, at that time, my father-in-law came down and he was visiting us and opened the cupboard doors and there was nothing there. Bob's coffee was there. My jar of instant McFly's was there, but that's it. There was nothing there. And he was appalled that I was doing such a poor job of providing for my family and began to give us $100 a month, which became our food budget. That was a long time ago, $100 a month now. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I saw a thing on Facebook where a guy was carrying three plastic bags. He says, look, I'm really getting stronger. I can carry $300 worth of groceries with one hand. <laughs> yeah, but it's not the same $300 as it was before, is it? You know? But the point is, we're not to focus on that. When we didn't have food, God provided rabbit livers. That's the truth. That's a true story. I'm not making that up. And Linda, at first, I thought she was going to puke on it. But, you know, they taste pretty good. They're better than other liver. In fact, it's some of the best liver you'll eat. And uh, I would go out and shoot squirrels. Linda hated that because she had to worry about breaking a tooth on buckshot, you know, on, on pellets. And uh, I tried to pick them all out, but sometimes I'd miss. And then God allowed me to actually shoot two deer one year. And we had, we had a freezer full of meat. And uh, we were living large on our uh, $100 a week salary. If you can believe living on $100 a week and then driving to Memphis every day, which was $70 worth of gas every week, uh, we were living on $30 a week. But you can do it because God can make things work. You know, and that's the point. We're not to focus on that. Take no thought for your life. What ye shall eat, neither for the things. Consider the ravens. Now, a raven is a crow. Actually, a raven is a big crow. And there is a whole family of birds that fit in the crow family. The raven is bigger than the 
ordinary crow. And honestly, there's a certain time of year here, there's like a hundred of them out in the trees over there. I don't know what that is. You know, it also remi it always reminds me the demons are moving into Middlebury when I hear all those birds out there calling and making making a ruckus. But uh, they were they were unclean. And yet, Jesus says, God feeds them. They don't have storehouses or a barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more are you better than a crow? That's the point. Well, if God will feed the birds of the air, the point is he'll feed you. And does worrying ever help? If I was driving back and forth to school, and putting that $12 a day into the gas tank that I couldn't afford. Uh, I couldn't even make it to Memphis on $12 now, but uh, back then, gas was a mere dollar a gallon. Uh, what good would worrying do? And which of you, by taking thought, anxiety, can add to a stature one cubit? That, a cubit is 18 inches. You'd have to think a long time to grow 18 inches, right? In fact, you couldn't do it. If you then, being not able to do that thing which is the least, why take you thought for the rest? Of what value is worrying? And yet, I find myself worrying over a lot of things. It does nothing to change tomorrow. God has a plan for your tomorrows. We don't need to worry about it because God has got it mapped out. It does nothing to change tomorrow. The only thing that worrying does is ruin today. We ruin today. We ruin our opportunities today. We lose sight of what God is doing in our lives today because we're not focusing on today. We're worried about tomorrow. Now, sometimes I know that's unavoidable, but that should not, again, that should not be the focus of our lives. Look at the flowers, Jesus said. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothed the grass, which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O oh, you of little grace, of little faith, I'm sorry. Now remember, these lessons, these, these pithy statements are directed at those of us who would follow Jesus and attempt to live the way he lived. These disciples, these followers of Christ throughout their lives will be dirt poor. They won't have a steady income. And ultimately, they'll be enemies of the state. And that could be us too. He is telling them not to worry. Put your trust in God. Rest in the promise of God in your life. The personal trust of God in your life. And trust the Father to provide your needs. Should we not all who follow Jesus do the same? And then he's coming to the end of the passage I wanted to do today. He said, seek the kingdom of God. And see, seek not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink. Neither be ye of doubtful mind or fearful minds. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. I love this verse. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I remember when I was living in Tennessee, I, I, I had given up the only house I ever owned. Is that right? No, no, it wasn't. I'd given up the third house I'd owned, and I lived in a parsonage. 
It was awkward living in someone else's house. It was difficult, and I always dreamed that the time would come when God would allow me to have a house again. And he has. He has. I don't need to be afraid. What I needed to do was follow God's will for my life and trust the fact that he'll provide all these other things for me. That's the way it works. You don't need to be afraid of these things. It isn't God saying, well, you can't have a house. You can't have a secular job. You can't have a car. You can't have a boat. He's not saying that at all. He's just saying, put me first. I should be first in your life. Number one, focus on that. Don't worry about whether you're going to have pizza for lunch. Worry about what you, want, what you want me to do today. That's what I should focus on. And then I love this verse. Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We don't have to worry about making it to heaven. That's been settled by the Lord Jesus Christ. All we have to do is focus on our relationship with Jesus Christ. Repent of our own self-will. Repent of our sin. And call on him to save us. That's the solution to the problem. And the kingdom is ours. It's right there for the receiving. And then I'm going to end it with this, except it didn't click. There you go. He ends it with this, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Sell that ye have and give alms, that's give to the poor. Provide yourselves bags which watch wax not old. A treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. People often say you can't take it with you. Well, you can. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can ask God what to do with all that he has given you. And you can invest it in ways that he's suggesting you invest it. You're not required to, don't get me wrong. God likes a tithe. He believes 10% is an illustration of your faith. But oftentimes people who follow Christ want to give more than just 10%. And they look for opportunities where they can help. I've heard of guys, I'm not one of them, who've tithed as much as 80 or 90% of their income. I remember a car dealer in Memphis. Is, of course, he was a car dealer. We think of them, they're all rich, you know. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But... He would always give all the all the leaders at the seminary where I went a new car every couple of years. I don't remember what kind of car it was. I think they were Chryslers. We'd give them a new Chrysler. And they all drove around in nice cars. And people thought, well, well, it must pay good to be a seminary professor. Well, not really. But I have a friend who sells cars. You know, that's the deal. The point is, this man's treasure wasn't in his parking lot. It was in the stuff that he gave away. In fact. A real measure of our wealth as Christians is what we gave away, not what we hold on to. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together. Thank you for this opportunity to go through these words. Luke so carefully wrote down for us 2,000 years ago. Father, may our hearts focus on things that matter. As we see our days getting more and more complicated in our country, becoming more and more anti-Christ. We pray, Father, that we will be bold, faithful witnesses to your Son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that I pray. Amen.